Dr. Melinda Shadovert, scholar, activist, and author of the book Sex Workers Unite, a history of the movement from Stonewall to Slut Walk, sits down with us to discuss the current state of sex workers' rights and how our country's horophobia keeps us all down. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. Hello. Mindy. Hello. Hello. Hi. Thank Thank you you so much for being here. We're so, honestly, I'm I'm honored that you're here and... um, your book is just such a wealth of information. It was published in 2014, right? And the paperback just yeah. came out. Um, so grab the book. It will blow your mind and really educate everybody on on what's going on. And It's really eye-opening. And for me, as a woman, I felt like I understood the feminist struggle more lucidly by reading your book, like this history timeline allowed me to understand where I was getting a lot of my ideas from and even kind of how recent it came about, like, you know, in my mom's generation and, and how a lot of these changes are very new and we're all trying to catch up kind of. Yeah. Um, my, so my, I, I just, I feel like I just want to say this is a very, uh, it's a topic that's close to our hearts here at Pushing Boundaries. Mm. Um, I, a, I, you know, I, I have a history in sex work and uh, I feel like it's become very important for me to speak out about sort of against this mainstream culture of, I guess, the mainstream beliefs and ideas that we have around sex work, because my experience was so vastly like a thousand percent opposite of what I think the mainstream expectation is, which is dark and seated and and yeah, you had a positive It was amazing. It was you had a positive growth experience. Totally. And it was, it was, a, and I'm not saying all these Go experiences into sex are, <laughs> right. But, but I do feel like, um, I, I feel like there's a voice that isn't being heard or, a, uh, yeah, it's, it's not being heard and a skewed and, perception. Exactly. Of, and so, which is why, Mindy, well, the moralistic shaming of yes. sex, sex work. Right. And so, so, which is why I, I, I um, I'm a huge fan of your work. And so um, maybe you could tell us how you started, how you kind of got into this and, and where your passion comes from. Yeah. How this all started for you. Well, let's see. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for coming out as a sex worker, because I think there's a lot of us that have been sex workers in the past, uh, women and men, who don't talk about it. And it's not even just so much of a shame. Sometimes it is shame. But sometimes it's like there's no place in the conversation to even bring that in, unless you're with other people who have been sex workers, and then it seems like you kind of can create that community. But there's very little, I think, in a, in a public dialogue that allows people to just talk about, hey, I was a sex worker, and or I did this, or I did that, and you know, I, and yet you get into these conversations, and then all of a sudden you begin to reveal, oh yeah, I traded, you know, I used to trick, you know. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And I think, you know, one person that I interviewed said that, you know, she thought that if more people actually acknowledge their history of sex work, we, the, whole, the whole push for decriminalization would like go really fast <laughs> because all of a sudden you would realize how many people had actually done this and, you know, but we, we tend to do it. And it, it also speaks to the temporality of doing sex work. People, you yeah. know, there's this sort of public notion or this perception that once a sex worker, always a sex worker, you know, you'll never get out of it and you'll all, you know, you'll die, you know, heroin addicted on the streets at the age of 27, right? <laughs> or something. Hey, no, that was really powerful for me actually in your book 
reading that difference of like my body is is still mine and I'm here and I'm you know what I mean and it's and it's just an experience it's not a permanent state yeah and I think that that's actually sort of where I was coming from in many ways when I started to write the book I mean I have a longer history of being interested in the way that issues around sexual behavior or a person's sexual behavior uh, give them rights or take away their rights as citizens and that we have this whole idea of the politics of respectability, which is all about, you know, being this sort of moral, upright person who is heterosexual usually or now can be gay. Uh, but, you know, the white picket fence, the 2.2 children, the dog in a house in the suburbs as a sort of way of saying, oh, well, people who act like that, who live a monogamous relationship that's married, uh, you know, that is producing um, children and, and buying into the quote American dream are those people who get the rights of citizenship and those who fall outside of that little magic circle don't get those rights. And to think about that in a larger sense, I decided that I would write specifically about sex work because to me that seems to be one of the most problematic ways that we're going to deal with the issue of sexual rights and what we also call sexual citizenship. So that's Oh, perhaps a little bit more intellectual, but that is as an academic is where I, I started to come from. Plus, then I knew all these sex workers, and they kept telling me they needed to hear about what was going on and what was the history of the movement. So I thought, okay, this all works together. Yeah, I, well, and that's and that's great. Maybe we could go right into that. What is, and you know, even me, like I've been I've been out of the industry for about a year now, but. I mean, to be honest, even when I was in it and I was in it for about four years, I, um, I, I it, it's a topic that never really touched me. I did. I never had any issues with law. I, the only thing I had to deal with constantly and keep in check was sort of like the shame barometer, because there is, uh, like I have to be careful when I file for taxes, there's no category. And I did pay my taxes. I, you know, there's no category for my profession. Mm -hmm. I have to be careful when I talk to my accountant or like who I, what I reveal to whom. And, and, you know, I can't, like, I was very good at what I did. I was a sexual healer. That's how I saw myself, but you know, and, and again, very successful at the top of my career and, and in my field, but you can't talk about that at parties and things like that. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you know it what I mean? So it's avoid. like, Right. So I, my, my issues were dealing more along with how do I, yeah, being on the outskirts of society when I'm college educated, intelligent, um, you know, my head on my shoulders, don't do drugs. I drove a Prius, you know what I mean? Like I, like I did it about the very, environment. Right. <laughs> not that these are all like mean that so I'm Wait, just saying I was not the drug addicted streetwalker. That you know, is, like, that that is stereotyped. Like, it was in sex slavery. And but so. well, gosh, and so many layers that you're hitting on. I, I think also I liked uh, Mindy, how you're hitting on the idea of status in our society and how much of it is governed through sexuality. And like, I, nobody acknowledges that, right? Because again, what you were saying, it's not a, like we can't talk about that in the mainstream. There's no room for it in public conversation. But in fact, we're like shaping um, status and like, and your, yeah, your, your levels of success actually on a, on a code of sexual purity hierarchy. <laughs> yeah. And a hierarchy of your sexuality. Right. And you can still be fired from a lot of jobs for what is called moral turpitude, yeah. which includes having a history of sex work. Right. Uh, so that, you know, people that I know of, uh, who, were fired from jobs as teachers in the public schools or even in private schools 
because way back somewhere in their like when they were still in college or even before they went to college, they had engaged in sex work or they had written about sex work or they were open about it and then as a result got fired. Now, it had nothing to do with the fact, you know, it wasn't influencing what they were doing currently, but it was in that history that made them, therefore, uh, ineligible to be around children or to do certain kinds of work, right? So, yeah, it continues, I think, to haunt us in kinds of ways. Um, and the fact that we continue to use that shame barometer, as you put it, I like that term, that, you know, <laughs> which shouldn't be there, you know? I mean, it's sort of like whatever. I, mean, I, I don't quite know. It, it does seem to affect so much of what we do. And so that's why I really got into it. And I mean, I think that also the other part of that for me was that I was also doing work uh, prior to actually writing this book. I did a lot of work in the King community as an advocate. And of course, there's a lot of shame around that too. And even, you know, with whatever you want to call the execrable 50 shades of gray and everything else, before that time, uh, and even why still, there's still so much, you know, shame around non-heteronormative, non non-reproductive kinds of sex or sexual behavior or desire, that you still have this problem of what you call same behavior. It's not just about sex work, but about all kinds of sexuality. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Mindy, um, why, maybe you could help paint a picture for listeners, because I think, I think the average person doesn't really get involved in this conversation because they are not sex workers. They may not hire sex workers They, you know, they feel like it, they're outside of it and they shouldn't care. And so I guess my question is why, why talk about this? Why make it an issue? Why bring it to the forefront and make people aware of it? I think the issue is both, I, it's not even so much a sense of trying to come out or actually asking people to come out or even being uh, knowledgeable about uh, sex work per se, but what I am more interested in or more, I think, committed to, as are many of the people who are activists currently, is that the shame around sex work and the other sort of ways that stigmatizing sexual behaviors, especially for money, uh, is that it leads to violence. It justifies a lot of violence, uh, especially against, I mean, even women who are not sex workers, but people, who, but women who have a history of being, you know, who have, of not being monogamous or not being in some kind of, you know, understandable sort of heteronormative relationship, Violence against them, whether it's, you know, all these murders that we've been seeing this year, particularly have been highlighted of transgender women of color, many of whom are sex workers for a lot of different reasons, as well as the violence against sex workers who themselves then, because of their status, cannot, you know, like go to the police if they have problems, cannot turn to uh, advocacy organizations. I know sex workers who would never call a rape crisis line because they are afraid that having admitted that they were sex workers would be shamed and not helped and, and shut out the door or reported to the police. Right. So well, that this is where a lot of the problems then start to really happen is we have to think about how the criminalization of sex work, which is part of the shaming factor, then also supports and perpetuates not just stigma, but also allows for violence that goes unpunished. 
Okay. Or unreported right. even. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a very, maybe I would love if you could sort of enlighten us about this, but there's a lot of uh, talk about decriminalization versus legalization. I mean, it's a big headache and, and conundrum as to like what's really going to help, if any of it. And so right. could you talk to each of those? And I know in the U.S. Um, there's been some legislation that's like been talked about being brought to the floor. And so I feel like it's just a conversation that's just starting now here in America. So I mean, they well, I guess- restarting. I'll, I'll, I'm going to just be the little historian and put up a, a say it's restarting. But let me uh, let me describe the difference. And I think one way to analogize it is this, uh, and very quickly, is that if you think about alcohol sales, in some in some states you can only buy them at a state controlled alcohol at a state controlled in, uh, you know store. Others you can buy alcohol almost anywhere and being somebody who lives in New Orleans, you can buy anywhere, anytime, drink it anytime, anywhere, walking right down the street without a paper bag. <laughs> okay, so uh, if you think about decriminalizing sex work versus legalizing sex work, many sex workers are less in favor of legalization because they're very aware of, if you will, a state argument which says that the state will have still too much power over the decisions that sex workers want to make about their lives. Either the state will, government will, or um, uh, <laughs> as my friend Melissa calls it, big brothel. You know, that in other words, commercial interests will determine what the work is about and have more problems with, you know, uh, and actually then you really become this kind of uh, person who is really a waged sex worker inside an industry. And that's the model for legalization. Um, you know, we're really talking about, in other words, the uh, Nevada brothels, okay, or the, uh, for that matter, the Rhode Island brothels before they were outlawed just a couple of years ago. Um, so this is a problem with legalization because it creates such a, a structure that anybody who won't work within that structure remains criminalized. So when we talk about decriminalization, we're talking about something that allows women themselves or workers themselves to determine the conditions, time, and uh, wages in which they will engage in sex work. That it actually totally privatizes those transactions. Mm -hmm. okay. You would still obviously report them to, you know, you would still, if, and, if you, and therefore, you know, it's, it's, but the conditions that you're talking about is, Yes, you could put sex worker on your, you know, on your tax return and say these are the wages I made because you will be an independent business person. Right, or like a freelancer. I, you know, yeah. I remember having a conversation with, with a, um, I mean, would you, an exotic dancer or a stripper, you know, that worked in clubs in New Orleans. I'm actually from there. And, uh, and she was talking about, you know, health insurance. And she had, um, I think, I think they discovered a lump like breast cancer. And it was, she was like, I'm not covered and they won't cover me because of my work. Like I'm, you know, invalid as a sex worker. Yeah. yeah. Just like the discrimination that happens. I mean, this was a few years ago, but I think it's still an issue if you're publicly like what I do for work. Yeah, exactly. Because if you come out as that and also and come out as a sex worker, you're, it, it, and I think it, you know, I'm not quite sure whether that those rules have changed. I think that's very interesting because I've not heard about the insurance problem in terms of discrimination. 
certainly there are other ways that insurance companies regulate our lives in ways that we don't even want to admit <laughs> or sometimes realize. But um, yeah, these are healthcare access is one of the things. And, you know, the few clinics that are out there, like the St. James Infirmary in San Francisco, the only clinic that's designed for sex workers that is what I like to call a whole body clinic. It's not just about, you know, your sexual part. It's all about everything in terms of your health and well-being. Um, you know, it's the only clinic in the United States that offers that kind of health care without judgment, without, you know, without discrimination. So wow. unless you're, so access to health care is a really big issue. Okay, um, Mindy, we're going to take a break real quick. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get into a little bit of uh, whore phobia and slut shaming and the mentality behind that's maybe, I feel, at the undercore of all of this violence toward... Uh, Women? Toward... Well, yes, sex workers. Anyone on the periphery. And uh, and we'll get some more information on the legalities and where, where uh, maybe the U.S. is going with all of that. So back in a quick sec, we're talking with Mindy Shadowvert. Dr. Melinda Shadowvert, she's the author of Sex Workers Unite, a History of the Movement from Stonewall to Slutwalk. Welcome back to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A. And uh, we're here talking with Mindy Shadowbert, author of Sex Workers Unite, History of the Movement from Stonewall to Slutwalk. Um, about, so, yes. picking up where we were, yes. uh, horror, horophobia, the first time I've ever heard that word used in this book, <laughs> and, uh, and slut shaming. Um, horophobia is really a powerful, great way to capture um, a current theme that I feel like is overt and nuanced in many ways that we don't even notice. Yeah. And I, I, Mindy, I wanted to bring this up because I, I read this quote and maybe I'm misperceiving it based on my own perspective in history um, of, you know, being in sex work, but, um, but there was something in your book, you, you quoted Mark O'Brien, who's a film historian who said that sex workers marginality is not a function of their otherness, but their ordinariness, that they're too disturbingly like us to be acknowledged. And that was the end of his quote. And I, I guess I feel like uh, you had mentioned that the problem or the the problem that, that this attitude creates is that it, it leads to violence in many different ways, not just physically. And I feel like at the core underneath all of that, yes, is this mentality. I feel like we really need to address the attitude and the judgment uh, and the sort of puritanical roots that maybe we all have as a nation subconsciously around sex. Um, and so I felt like there's a projection from the average, from the mainstream of, uh, you know, I don't know, some sort of psychological thing happening where sex workers represent, and that I certainly felt this way, that I, as a sexually liberated woman, perhaps more than the average person, um, that I brought, dis I brought out discomfort in other people who were not as liberated or who were perhaps more repressed in their own lives. And so then 
they project the the discomfort was projected onto me. So I, you know what I mean? And does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, we call, I mean, you know, sociologists and other folks have called it the othering. The fact Mm -hmm. that you look at somebody else and you don't, you can't, that you want to create them as another, you construct them as something other than you are. And I think what draws both of us to that quote was the fact that it says this othering is some total social construction that really doesn't exist, that doesn't really have a reason to exist. But it, by actual, or its reason to exist is, is a whole lot of different cultural reasons that, uh, you know, are really based on our own stereotypes, our own information, our own misinformation and perceptions of another person, of an, a person that can be categorized as someone not like yourself. Um, and oftentimes that, especially when we talk about whorephobia and slut-shaming, Historically, a lot of that was, first of all, I mean, obviously, first of all, it's the, the very, within a Western culture is, is a, uh, is, is a Christian, a Christian thinking about, you know, a Mary Magdalene who is not Mother Mary, right? Well, right. we have that Madonna versus Mary Magdalene kind of thing going. That's, of course, been with us for so long. And, you know, you could trace it back to Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. You can go all the way through, right? I mean, even somebody who commits adultery is somebody who is an other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the other part of that, though, is that in thinking about whorephobia, in addition, and I trace this, I think, a little bit in the book, um, is that there is also even a psychological or science developed around uh, sex workers or prostitutes as being others that, you know, are, are subjected to a particular kind of standard and study. So for a long time uh, within psychological literature, there was an, uh, every sex worker who, everybody who was, a, every woman who was a prostitute was abused as a child. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a result of trauma and that, you know, bad parenting or, you know, class differences or, or she was somebody who was a, a rot of, you know, not a rot of phobia, but actually a, this absolutely into sex, and she was driven by her sexual desire. And women, of course, are not supposed to be driven by a sexual desire, because that's the only way you can explain women who do uh, sex work. Uh, and of course, even then, we knew even when those theories were being paraded around, which began actually in the early 19th century, I mean, in the early 20th century, um, even then we knew, of course, that was not true, but it was a comfortable way for middle class women and men to be able to other those people who were, who were in the sex industry. So that has also, I think, changed so much because I think one, well, not, maybe not changed as much, but I think what the current movement is so committed to doing is to show that sex workers can be your next door neighbor. You won't even recognize the sex worker in walking down the street. Because first of all, most sex workers don't wear, you know, exactly. hooker heels. <laughs> they don't hang out at night on, on on the street corner, lean into cars. I mean, we have a whole joke in the movement. It's like, oh my goodness, somebody tweeted this the other day. Wow, a whole thing on sex work where there's no woman leading into a car at night, or or a picture of a shoe as the marker of a sex worker. <laughs> so, um, you know, we continue to do all this stuff, right? Yeah, how it's how it's in a weird way also been assimilated into mainstream culture, like to wear the little dresses and hooker heels, basically. 
Um, I mean, you see like fashion influences that kind of infuse it, but nobody acknowledges <laughs> yeah, that's true, where it comes the correlation. From. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, the, like those... hookers left and that yet, one. And yet, <laughs> wait a minute, let me add to that. And yeah. yet, when it's a person who is a, or a, a woman or a trans woman in an area known for prostitution wearing exactly that same clothing, and she has four or more condoms in her possession, she can be arrested on suspicion of prostitution. Oh, Lord. Simply what? for the possession That's of four condoms. A woman in L.A. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Little anecdote, but I, I, it's like I've come so many, I've peeled back so many layers of like coming from a very mainstream perspective of even like being very anti-porn and all these things. And, and even like, I remember not wanting to buy condoms in a store by myself. And I remember one time a boyfriend being like, well, I don't have any in the house. Like just stop by and get them on your way here. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was so aware of my shame. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like there's nothing to be ashamed of. And like, if anything, I want to announce it. Like right. I'm coming to the store. Hi, where are the condoms? <laughs> well, it's exactly. yeah, as a woman. And it's a process. And, and I'm glad. Yes, I think uh, you're right. Yes, your next door neighbor can be uh, a sex worker. And it is not uh, this typical image. And I think the more sex workers like myself and and I'm not sure if you did you if you came from a history or, or whatnot, I don't want to jump in and out if you if you're, I don't know, but um, or, or anybody else, I, I feel like the more women come out um, and tell their stories and, you know, again, college educated, you come, there's a lot of women out there. You just don't, you just don't hear it. Um, but yeah. I can guarantee you that it, there, I know about, I think there's about five women on my block who are sex workers, yeah. and, you know, in LA, but I think um, your experience as well, a really highlights, um, how, uh, is in a way sex workers have become almost educators because of the lack of kind of, accessibility to sex education that we have, like, you know, bringing like a healing quality or, or helping people expand from the norm. Well, I can only speak you know, to my experience with it. I definitely took it on as a healing art. And um, so, so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I didn't network a lot with other sex workers, but, um, but I, I did want to touch on Mindy. Uh, you mentioned misinformation and I wanted to go through maybe there's like I just kept going through myth after myth after myth when I was, you know, going through your book and I'd love to address some of those. One of them being that, that sex work, well, yes, that prostitution is just a, a female sexual slavery and institutionalized rape. Yeah. For example. And also combining it with sex trafficking, like the vision that they're one and the same. Sorry, mm -hmm. did we overlook the question? So, yes, yeah, so that's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of conflation, and that has really been in many ways a, I want to say a recent phenomenon, but in fact, it's actually an old phenomenon. Um, it actually occurred at the turn of the 19th and 20th century when the white slavery mania was very, uh, was infused a lot of women's activism uh, outside of suffrage, the suffrage movement. Um, and so it's actually coming back into play. And it's been actually very deliberate. I, one of the things I did um, is to trace how and who were perpetuating these myths or creating this myth. And I want to point out, as I do in the book, uh, that it actually is tied, it began in the anti-porn movement. And the same women who were involved in the anti-porn movement then decided that they were losing that, realized they were losing that, and began instead to start focusing on prostitution. They had always been against prostitution, 
but they but when they realized they were going to lose the war against porn or couldn't do anything more with it, they moved over to prostitution. And in the same kind of way that they did with the porn wars, they have aligned with the Christian right. Hmm. And the Christian right has so been right on them. What? Like, but using different rhetoric, but it's essentially the same mentality. Is that it's the same people? Sort of a, it's right, not just the same mentality. It's the same people, oh. you know, who are actually behind all of this, which I find fascinating. Um, but I think the second part of that too, it it still speaks to this notion of what a woman should be and do. Uh, to quote one of my African American, stellar African American historians, um, in the sense that, on the one hand, women should be at home, they should be housewives, they should be, or even if they're out in the workplace, they should have remunerative work. They should be able to do all sorts of, you know, things that don't involve doing sex work. Um, but it also speaks to this notion, I think, on the part of even feminist and non-feminist women, that sex workers rep- represent a threat to the stability of their marriage, not just the sanctity of their marriage, but the stability of their marriage. Um, There is, to me, a very romantic view about marriage that many wives hold, or prospective wives hold, that, oh, I'll get married and my husband and I will be monogamous for the rest of our lives. Well, the recent hacking of Ashley Madison tells us just how how whack that is as an idea. so that romantic part really does, uh, I think, affect a lot of women's uh, anti-prostitution views. I women, agree. women, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I agree because uh, I and and this is at the core of a lot of what I what I write about. And it is that I feel there's this fear of acknowledging the truth, perhaps of or a truth that can exist within. Um, many different many relationships of where desire lies and I have my own philosophies around uh, marriage and monogamy and whatnot but having been from where I've come from my experience in it was um, my clients there was no I did not take away from their their marriage and their family life was a completely separate thing than whatever I was what I what I was in their life and the the two didn't um, meet other than I, I honestly I feel like I put uh, put a lot of men back in touch with their families and their wives in a new way and I you know pushing them calm down take a breath go feed the baby you know and it, like <laughs> honestly I swear yeah, I, I would have these conversations it. and it was it was so th- and and that's kind of a different uh, well that's more like the a, human psychology topic, which but, we've talked about on our show as well like to compartmentalize and like how they're yeah the different experiences and being able to love multiple people right like that's a study that's been done and yes um but I, I think that also the the fears I think are like like you were saying that it's going to destabilize marriage. That's the fear, right? But it's it's kind of like both can coexist, I well, think. Perhaps at least Maybe let's have a conversation. We're... It's like I feel yeah, I agree. Like if you fear. want to choose the monogam you know, the monogamous marriage, that's fine. And it's back to just this idea of you as a woman having the right to make your decision rather than being mm-hmm. confined. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, yeah, I, but addressing the fear instead of just hiding behind it and being like, no, 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 I don't want to acknowledge that, you know, the life might not be the way I expected it to be. Let's just open our eyes and have a conversation and a real look at 
you know, maybe what's really going on. But and and so yes, I feel like that's an underlying the psychology of a lot of it all. Um, uh, Mindy, the, there's a new so Amnesty International just had a call for decriminalization worldwide, and I wanted to touch yeah. on that because um, uh, I know. I don't know. I mean, I, Sweden's prime minister in response said something to the effect that, well, it hasn't really worked. So come and visit us. And, uh, you know, it's not really that effective. Um, so what do you I mean, how do you think that's going to affect the U.S.? And well, let me reply to the Swedish minister. <laughs> OK, <laughs> well, at least uh, point out the, the, the line that he's feeding you is BS. Okay, because while in fact Sweden decriminalized women engaged in prostitution, women soliciting for prostitution, they criminalized men who tried to engage prostitutes. So that if you are a, if you are a client, you are now the one who faces arrest. So they didn't actually decriminalize prostitution. They kept it criminal, but they shifted the criminal part of it, they claim, to clients. Right. So, so it's not decriminalized at all. It is still illegal. Um, and, I, and what has happened to sex workers in Sweden, as Ty Jacobson and many members of the Rose Alliance have documented, which are, who are the sex worker groups in, in Sweden and elsewhere, uh, have documented, is that because men already have power, whether it's monetary or physical or just male privilege, they are actually uh, now in a way more fearful when trying to hire the services of a sex worker. And, most, and what's happening is a lot of women who are engaged in sex work actually are more vulnerable because they cannot openly negotiate with a client for services. And men who feel threatened are more likely to do violence against them because they're, fear, they're afraid of arrest. Hmm. And the punishment is much greater than it ever was under previous laws. So this, quote, Swedish model, or what some people call Nordic model, is actually much more dangerous and is not decriminalization at all. Because one of the other parts that we forget about with the abolitionist movement is that it has a very, if you will, what we call historically a white ribbon society kind of parameter about it, which is that, you know, men should also be chased. Remember, this is also part about keeping men chased. Player, right? Like this, oh, these terminology about, about that, yeah. guys being dogs and all that, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, the Swedish model, so beyond that, though, the amnesty call is historic. I think it's fabulous that a leading international human rights organization has called for decriminalization. But I will also point out that in earlier years and earlier decades, the ACLU in the United States has a strong position for decriminalizing prostitution. Not that it's done that much work, but it does have a position for it, on it, as does the National Organization for Women. Wow. All calling for decriminalization. However, I would say that with now, what they're more interested in at this point is now is that they would actually, I mean, many members of NAS support a Swedish model that criminalizes men who are both dogs who go out and hire sex workers, um, but they want to protect the women by decriminalizing it so women aren't affected by men's 
you know, sexual, you know, proclivities. Well, also, also being defined as a, as a victim. This is so fascinating. We're going to keep talking with Melinda. Tune in next week to hear more about the details of sex work policy, what works, what doesn't, and the future of sex work in America. You're listening to Pushing Boundaries with TNA. I'm T. And I'm A.